Welcome to Beyond the Lead, where two young thinkers discuss current events and big ideas. This podcast provides in-depth analysis, along with free-flowing discussions about politics, philosophy, foreign policy, psychology, and many other fields you need to know about. Here's your hosts, Mike and Patrick. Hello and welcome to Beyond the Lead. I am Mike. You can find me on Twitter at Mike Stinner with three N's. Mike, S-K-I-N-N-N-E-R. What's up, Patrick? Hey, and I am Patrick Florin. You can find me on Twitter at Patrick F-O. So here we are. Another week. More news. Um, more news. So I have, more scandals. I, more updating on stuff. More so just craziness like usual, right? Next week, I'll be able to talk about an event that I'm going to tonight. I'm actually seeing the... Mexico's ambassador to the United States. He's giving a talk, and it's presented by the World Affairs Council of St. Louis. Okay, and that's pretty cool. Yeah, I'm pretty, I'm pretty excited about it. It's at a, a fancy hotel. We get like a, a three course dinner. It's me nice. and like six. It's me and six of my favorite like class peers, and then one of my favorite professors. So it's gonna be fun. Is this something that just you were invited to because you're you know the grad student? Yeah, well, there was what, a how does it work? There was a talk that was that was between two scholars about the you know Iranian nuclear deal actually two weeks ago, and that okay. got canceled, and I was going to go to that. So then right. that same professor who invited me to that said, "Hey, you know, I have some bad news. That got canceled, but I have better news because this like this is a this is a bigger deal, you know, according to him. Yeah. I actually kind of wanted to see the scholars talk more about Iran, but mm-hmm. this is an actual like you know state official from Mexico giving a talk, right? And so yeah, I was like, yeah, I'll go to that for sure." Heck yeah, that's pretty awesome. Yep. So, all right, well, let's, we'll get into our main story today, or I don't know if it's necessarily the main, but it's going to be the first one we talked about at least. Yeah. So, um, I don't know how we want to begin, but basically a lot of pe- uh, one of the main headlines this week has been Niger. Or Niger. What is the proper term? I've heard I think it's probably Niger. five different uh, pr- pronunciations of it, and I don't know what the proper one is. Listen, I think for <laughs> all like intents and purposes. Niger. Yeah, Niger. Niger. Okay, I think that works. <laughs> Niger works for me. Right. So I was going to uh, kind of just briefly explain what happened the day of the attack, since that's what's been in the news, and there's been a lot of controversy behind it, and we'll get into a lot a lot of the details, but uh, the Washington Post compiled a really great um, article that really just explains all the facts that, at least as we know it. So what they say is that it's unclear, but we do know that a group of 8 to 12 U.S. soldiers was accompanying 30 to 40 Nigerian troops on some kind of mission near Tongo Tongo. Other accounts suggest that only 8 to 12 Nigerian and American soldiers actually entered the village and that the other Nigerian troops were stationed nearby. The group met with leaders and collected supplies. As they were heading home, they were ambushed by about 50 militants. And then there was a firefight. Witnesses said the assailants blew up their vehicles. The soldiers ran for cover and began returning fire. Apparently, a French military aircraft was on the scene within 30 minutes, but it didn't fire on the attackers. There are different accounts as to why, but Reuters reported that the fighting was happening at close quarters, so the French aircraft couldn't intervene. But others have said that Niger forbids airstrikes on its soil. So there's a little bit more, but I, th- I think right. that's, that's a good uh, summary of basically what happened on the day and what, what we're actually talking about. Right, yeah, and that was what I thought was the most interesting about this story was actually that we have U.S. troops in Niger. Um, I was aware of that because I, 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 I read about counterterrorism and 
and such. But um, I don't right. think many Americans knew that we had troops in Niger. And it right. even sounds like a lot of the congressmen sounded confused. And that yes. to me is unacceptable. Like, I don't know if they're lying or if they're like, like right. that's, that's insane. If I remember me. right, it was Chuck Schumer, didn't he say, he said, I didn't even know, or I don't know if it was him, but I think it was yeah. him. He said, I didn't even know that we had, yeah, and that's pretty ridiculous that our Congress yeah. and, men and women and, don't know. And I was saying like, it's not, it's not a secret if you just, especially if you're on the foreign relations committees, uh, if you're on the, uh, the veterans affairs committees, like we know that there are troops Actually, there are basically troops in every country around the world. Like, there could be a story tomorrow that breaks that says a soldier died in Colombia or in Chile, and it would be, like, possible. Like, we are in every country in the world. Sure. And like, If I remember right, didn't you respond to someone on Twitter? Uh, I forget yeah. what they said, but you, you're basically like, uh, if you read newspapers and just yeah. keep up a little bit, you would, you was, would be aware <laughs> that this happened. It was Thaddeus Russell. He actually tweeted, That's like, right, hey, yeah. you know, if you listen to this uh, podcast, I forgot, I forgot what it's called, but it's by Scott Horton, I think, of antiwar.com. He's like... Uh, then you would know about our troops being in Nigeria, and that's why I'm always like, I, I, I always just defend well, you, you the idea. You don't have to listen to this random obscure podcast. You just have right. to read uh, newspapers, or <laughs> yeah, I, I just defend the idea of if, if you just read any like quality mainstream source, you'll know a lot more than you think. And I think most people who criticize it just seriously just don't ever do it. So they think they're worse than they, you know, they think they're worse <laughs> than they actually are. Like just sure. read something consistently, and you'll know a lot about the world. Um, right. But so. I want to read the most important piece of legislation that has been passed in the 21st century that explains why we're in Niger. Um, it's very short, which is why I want to read it, because it's really funny how short it is and how, how, how broadly it has been interpreted. So yeah. I'm talking about the, the authorization of the use of military force, which was okay. signed actually three days after September 11th in 2001. Yeah. Um, only one congressman voted no on it, and that is Barbara Lee from the uh, Democrat from California, and I love that point. She's the only one who's, because her reason was this very fact that mission creep is going to happen. We're never going to get out of these places. And so all the a AUMF says, I mean, there are a couple like addendums and like, you know, uh, uh, technical sections, but this is what all it says, that the president is authorized to use all necessary and appropriate force against those nations, organizations, or persons that he determines planned, authorized, committed, or aided the terrorist attacks that occurred on September 11, 2001, or harbored such organizations or persons in order to, to prevent any future acts of international terrorism against the United States by such nations, organizations, or persons. Wow. And that is what we have used to go into every country that we're in right now. Um, and basically any group that has, because most of these groups actually formed after 9-11, but because they're related to Al-Qaeda and they have the same ideas, like we consider this uh, this piece of legislation credible um, mm -hmm. for covering all of it yeah absolutely i mean just sitting and thinking about the uh those terms you can just think about how literally anybody the president doesn't like to be lumped into that territory will be lumped lumped into that category especially yeah. when with something as broad as that and when it what, didn't it say governments uh groups and persons yeah and and, <laughs> yeah. and so do they have a specifically defined definition of terrorism or it was just or no it was just uh anyone that they think was part of the september 11th attacks is, right is that kind and, of what it is yes and so like that actually i think if if a judge looked at it that could be that could actually be ruled very specific like it's it's focusing on groups that you know that organize right aided the attacks on september 11th and That's then the not next, what I would think. But... The next clause says, or harbored such organizations or persons, and that is like what allows us to be like, That's well, you know, <laughs> Afghanistan, um, 
Iraq, which wasn't, it actually ended up not being true, but like it was the idea, like if you had any such bases or any sort of evidence that you allowed people yeah. to cross your borders that were going to commit terrorism, we can they use all, to be there. All, right. all appropriate force. Um, yeah, and I think Congress well, really needs uh, okay, to. So I did not completely understand how that would make sense for like the Middle East and the Northern African areas, but what about in Colombia and whatnot? So um, I mean, how does that I, affect? No, Okay, I mean, I, I, we're, well, we're in Colombia for like anti, um, anti, like uh, narcotics, right, like and, drug cartels and, and whatnot. Yeah, yeah, and and insecurity and order in there in right. Colombia. Um, that isn't that actually isn't part of the AUMF, but okay, yeah. I, I, I'm still saying there are there are troops there where it's, if they die right. tomorrow, you could you know they it, it, it's possible because they are there. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, so the there actually isn't is a new there was a new military command created called AFRICOM created in 2007 during the George W Bush administration mm-hmm. and but they were they were they were in there they were in Africa um just months after the attacks on September 11th and okay. um you know the the stated purpose is basically to train these police and these intelligence and security forces so that they can you know so that they can actually police their own border but it, again, like the lines kept getting blurred and blurred through through the Bush administration, the Obama administration, and now the Trump administration, where yeah, it, it looks like you, our troops are supposed to be training, but then they're also fighting. Like they actually right. can get into fights. Um, they were mm-hmm. fighting in Syria. Like they weren't just training in Syria. And there's all kinds of probably like reasons for the way that we. You know, there's all kinds of reasons for why it's framed that way. Yeah. Um, well, so it's worth mentioning, um, I was going to read a little bit more from that Washington Post article. They were mentioning, so why are we actually in Niger? So um, I liked how you explained how that kind of uh, explains how we can get into all these areas in general. So this uh, this Washington Post article, I, for, I forget who the author is. I, I'll find it in a second. But they said that U.S. troops arrived in 2013 to help the French military, which was running an operation against al-Qaeda in Mali. Yeah. Then President Barack Obama sent 150 service members to Niger's capital, Niamey, to set up a surveillance drone operation over Mali. Now, today, there are about 800 soldiers assisting in the fight against al-Qaeda, the Islamic State, and uh, Boko Haram. That, which is the Nigerian extremist military group. Yeah. Now, um, just uh, hang on, uh, one more real quick. They said, many have been tasked with setting up a drone base in the country's northern desert or running surveillance missions out of Niamey. So, you know, we have troops there, and it seems like uh, a lot of it is to help the people there, but it's also, again, just to, quote, fight more terrorism. Yeah, and that so the, the, drone, pa- the drone base being built in Niger is a $100 million base. Um, mm-hmm doesn't sound like we plan on leaving <laughs> right and again I, I i again i think that what we are doing are supporting african countries and we're and we're trying to help them conduct conduct a counterterrorism mm-hmm. but if you do if you do realize that this is all being sort of um legalized through the aumf 16 years ago and if you speed if you just speed time up forward you can really see that and this this is like you can really just see that it might be, it might be the case that no credible um, group of people could ever put up a fight against any already standing status quo country because yeah. we're all like all of the major Western countries now are basically trying to help all the our, the status quo governments remain even if they are dictators, mm-hmm. you know, even if they're strongmen. Yeah. Um, but again, like I have a, I have a nuanced opinion about what about about like whether or not I think we should stay there. Um, 
this, this isn't like full-blown war. This isn't imperialism. This isn't colonialism. This is trying to help, you know, help help security and help peace, um, peace be right. um, for further, for sure. Um, I criticize our... Right, so what you're saying is is that this isn't the same as just an invasion in Iraq and what we've been doing in, no, it's not. in the Middle East more in the recent It's definitely years. not the same as the Iraq war and Afghanistan yeah. even. Um, right. It is different. Um, I criticize our country more. Um, we... The, 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 there's actually a new cover of the foreign affairs magazine that just came out for november december and it has like a split uh, a, a split down the line uh, uh, down the middle and one half is like americans like uh, barbecuing and doing having fun and the other half is like you know a scene of war and it's like uh, it, it's called america's forgotten wars and it's like yeah um when fewer and fewer families are involved in war we, we can ignore it and i think congress should update the law i think it should be it should be it probably should be um, reined in a bit, constrained a bit. Um, totally agree. But and, and like that's just where like the the democratic norms have to be honored here, and we have to know that we're at war, and we have to actually see more images and right. and debate like and, and debate the stuff as a country. Yeah, absolutely. That's one thing I wanted to point out is how, uh, you know, in in the wording of the USAM, uh, sorry, USA, it's USMF, right? It's the AUMF. You had said that the president, uh, uh, you know, if yeah. who the president deems is responsible. And I think this kind of gets back to our, our discussion a little bit about the Iran deal. I had asked you, you know, wouldn't it make sense to send a little bit more to Congress so that the president doesn't have as much power? And I, I think it's kind of relevant here is that I agree with you. I think that that, uh, that absolutely needs to be, what's the word, re-legislated or whatever the, the word is I'm, um, I'm looking for. Is so I don't think that any president at all, but just thinking about who our current president is, yeah. just m- makes me terrified to think of who he can just say, oh, well, you're an enemy, you're an enemy, you're an enemy, when yeah. they may not actually be. Yeah, and like, it like it started as we're going to attack sort of high level terrorist actors and then it kept getting lower and lower and lower and then now we're just bombing anyone who's 18 years old male in a certain area of the world who's right. whose metadata looks like that they're you know that that they're um I'm part of an organization and sure. i remember reading a book um scott shane is the author i believe from the new york times it's called operation troy and that was the code name they gave for the anwar awalaki um oh, mission okay. and it was really, it was really um, nuanced about like how like the Obama administration. They're all lawyers, you know, and they were really trying to find like how can we justify attacking an American citizen in Yemen who's not like well, like so. The, the point was, it sounded like that they ruled it, that they viewed it as a sort of if you're there planning, organizing, spreading viral videos on YouTube, which out which Awalaki did, right? He was the main guy after Bin Laden got got killed, right? And it was right. like the they're looking at, at that at, at the way like domestic police departments do as that is a person with a gun always running towards the cop <laughs> like mm-hmm. like we can always consider that person um trying to engage in, a, in an imminent attack and that's how they legal like that's how they got away with it and codifying it and saying this is why we can do it he actually is an enemy of the state um but yeah it's just the american people need need like need to know more about it is basically my big point here yeah no absolutely and just kind of i know we don't really want to get into the controversy um as much as kind of you know the what happened afterwards and i think that part of the problem was because there are a lot of questions about what happened you know especially yeah. with uh with sergeant uh david when he was 
how they didn't find him for two days and no one's really answered that question and how there's so many questions. And then we look at our stupid president has to decide to just take things so much worse. And, you know, uh, his comment about, well, uh, he knew what he was getting himself into. I can absolutely see how someone could take that as heartless. And then, but then when you, when you sit and think about it, Trump is, you know, not exactly the most, Let's let's say emotionally intelligent. That uh, <laughs> is that how I should say. That's and one way had, of saying uh, it, right? <laughs> uh, when John Kelly came out and said that he said, you know, to John Kelly, who is a gold star family member, you know, his his son was killed in action, and uh, he had said, you know, that he mentioned actually to t- or he had told Trump to say that, but Trump mm. had said that that wrong. Then you had all of this politicization, and then that uh, that one uh, I forget who she was. The lady with all the hats. Yeah, I can't. I can't recall her name right now. I can't. It's like Frederico something, but I can't remember. So I just had this quote that I wanted to read to you from uh, Ben Shapiro, who I know is very partisan, but I thought that this is something that actually made sense to me and just kind of is a problem with just society taking things and politicizing them when they don't have to be. So he says that Trump's politicization of sacred space in our culture is a serious problem obviously, but it's serious because no culture can exist without certain cultural capital, trust, and that trust exists only when there are certain spaces in which we can assume agreement without having to ask. Thomas Sowell writes that cohesive groups rich in cultural capital have certain advantages in business and life. Quote, attitudes exist in societies that can be beneficial or harmful, end quote. Like-minded groups can easily minimize transaction costs, thereby lo- lo- uh, sorry, thereby lowering costs in economic terms. In social terms, these groups are less likely to facilitate conflict between individuals. When we share cultural totems and taboos, we are all better off. So it just kind of gets at how we really need to stop taking sacred things like, like you know, like I would think gold star families and politicizing them and m- making them worse because of all those reasons. So I, I just present right. that to you and, and, you know, curious what you think. I mean, I just think that we've always, we I don't think there's anything sacred in our country. Um, these kind of things have always been politicized. I mean, Benghazi was politicized for years. Years. <laughs> years. No doubt. Um, and Trump as a candidate was already... Um, you know, making lewd um, um, critiques of John McCain and of the that 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 Khan family, you know, yeah. um, and like this is par for the course for for Trump. It's definitely it's definitely is a different level as far as once you're the president, you don't usually make claims that that are this sort of um, unsophisticated. And, yeah, yeah. Um, but um, like I just didn't even even wade into these waters this this time around. Um, there's too many scandals to try to follow. And that's why I just wanted to read more about like why we were there. And like that, that's right. like, that, but that like, I'm, I'm agreeing with the sentiment there. Cause I'm saying like, we don't take this stuff seriously already. And the entire media covered it. Like they covered the scandal part of it instead of, wait a minute, we have troops in all these countries, 16 years after nine 11. Like, what are they doing? I'm mean, like, I like that's see that. So like, I'm not, I mean like political conversations to me are different than, whatever you call this spectacle that we're living in. Yeah. Like it's not political even. It's like pseudo it's pseudo political. Like a political discussion like a discussion about being at war in all these countries is political. Like this sure. is like just tabloid nonsense. This, yeah, exactly. No, that's exactly what it is. It's tabloid nonsense. <laughs> Absolutely. So, all right, well, let's move on to uh, the second part of kind of this this Middle East, I guess. Or I mean, I know Nigeria isn't in the Middle East, but we're talking about terrorism in general. We wanted to update our viewers on Syria and Iraq. 
So I, I know you had a, you had some things you, you wanted to mention. About yeah, so that. I was just following the story that so in late September, the the Kurds in Iraq voted for a an an independence referendum, and um, then you know a couple weeks later the Iraqi military um, forces its way into uh, Kirkuk, which was taken by the Kurds. Um, actually, so at first it was taken over by ISIS, which was then liberated by the Kurds and Iraq and the U.S., mm-hmm. and then it was taken from the Kurds. Right. Um, uh, now by the Iraqi government. And so there's actually been a lot of good reporting about the state of Kurdistan right now and the state of Kirkuk. And it's like, um, not everyone... So there there wasn't actually a big a big resistance against the Iraqi government taking uh, Kirkuk back over. And it's because the Kurds right now actually are divided. They have two main political parties. Um, Masoud Barzani is the leader of the Kurdistan Democratic Party. And he actually is who made this vote happen and people kind of kind of um, consider him in sort of very dark terms like he's he's self-serving he's not actually interested in Kurdistan and then the larger party is the Patriotic Union of, the, of Kurdistan the PUK and they were against the, re- the the referendum and so I'm saying the Kurds as of right now are divided they have nothing that would make them an independent state right now anyway mm-hmm. um, so it's like this vote came too soon um, and um, so, but I was thinking at large, like, what should U.S. policy be towards the Kurds? Well, actually, like, what, well, you know, what does the Kurds themselves, what do they want? And that's why I found they're they very divided right now. Like, some of them want a sort of um, a strip of land that would go through Iran, Iraq, Syria, and Turkey even. And that's not going to happen. Like, right. that is, these nation states are not going to allow these countries to be divided anymore. Mm-hmm. And um, And then, so the other option is having a regional government in Kurdistan without Kirkuk, that would be basically how it exists, like how it has existed since 1991. Um, okay. They would, like, they'd have a lot of, I think it's called like confederation, like they'd have a lot of autonomy within the region. It'd be like a state, you know, like Missouri yeah. or Washington, it'd be a state, they'd have a lot of leeway. Um, they wouldn't have their own currency, so yeah, it'd be it'd be part of a country still, but they'd have a lot of autonomy in like electing officials and running their daily lives and, and having right. some revenue from oil resources. Um, mm-hmm. And the other is like completely be absorbed into Iraq and not hold the grudge of the past and just become part of Iraq without being like an ethnic state. Okay. Um, yeah, that makes that's sense. That's kind of the four possibilities right now. Um, so, so I guess I'm kind of curious. So how directly tied into um, how tied into this is or sorry, the recent defeats of ISIS and whatnot, how related to it is is what is what you're talking about? Is is are, like you know these elections and all this. This is only able to happen because you know these governments or whatnot are finally starting to be stabilized. Is is that kind of yeah? I mean, is it that looks fair like, to say? I would say Iraq's more stabilized than Syria. Um, Syria also has now a sort of a region that has been occupied by Kurds in Syria, and they want their own freedom too. Mm-hmm. And I'm less optimistic about that, like ever happening, because Iran doesn't want their Kurds to be. So basically, the Kurds are considered the largest um, minority demographic ethnicity in the world um, without their own nation state. They're 30 million people, and they've never had their own wow. nation state. And it's divided between Turkey, Iran, Iraq, and Syria. Mm-hmm. And but again, like they're so divided, and they've been divided for so long that they that they do have a bunch of different um, political parties. They, a bunch of different ideas about how they should run things so they're not organized as one you know one group right now anyway um mm-hmm. the 
Yeah, the, the fall of ISIS is really happening. Like they've lost basically basically 90% of their territory in Iraq and Syria. And that is what is allowing yeah. this 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 new this new time to begin. Um, I just think there's no reason that to again like out of any people, I think Kurds need Kurds probably deserve their own independent state. But the precedent that that sets for the world right now is not what nation states want to see happening. Like they want, like we don't want to see a hundred more independent nation states coming up. I mean, I say that's me personally, right? There's sure. a, a bunch of nativist movements that kind of are in the same kind of same kind of um, mood right now. Is more and more smaller organized states, but that just adds to a lot more problems that have a lot of consequences themselves. Especially right. if you if you're, you're you're landlocked, you have no access to the to the water. Like you have to negotiate, you have to, to um, negotiate with these larger states anyway. Right. Um, like I said, I just the more I read about the Kurds right now, it seems like they definitely were not ready for that vote, and yeah. it makes sense that there was no pushback even for Iraq to come retake Kirkuk. All right. Well, that's pretty interesting. I know I, I kind of wanted to emphasize a little bit more about how ISIS is actually being defeated. So okay. I have a, I have a, a quote from a CNN article they're talking about um, ISIS in Syria. So I just wanted to let everyone know that U.S.-backed forces fighting ISIS in Iraq say that major military operations in the city have ended and the jihadists have lost control of their self-declared capital. The development makes a decisive victory in the fight against ISIS, though U.S. officials say there were still pockets of resistance in the city. And so not only has ISIS been defeated there, but they've also been defeated in Marari in the Philippines, which has been something that I haven't heard talked about in the news at all, but I I watch um, Vice a lot. I don't watch every single episode that they put out but i like their friday documentaries and they have done a bunch on the philippines and what's what's happening over there there's a that's a you know a whole topic in itself but isis has been defeated there as of just a few days ago and said so there's a little bit of positivity going on i guess in that aspect right yeah i mean like just the the fear is that they're going to be that that you know so they didn't kill all the isis isis members so now they're going to be trying to go back to all the countries that they're from Yes, and, and that's the point honest, I wanted to kind of get into actually a little bit was what do you think is going to happen with that? Um, I I mean I still expect more. You know I don't want to call them lone wolf attacks because that's actually a misnomer because they usually have contact. There's usually right. more organization than we think. Not not always, but usually. Sure. And I think Europe is more vulnerable than any other country as, as far as for the West. You know I mean again most terrorist attacks are carried out in Muslim countries, so you know those citizens themselves have more to fear. But right. as far as the West goes, Europe is going to probably see more and more terrorist attacks. Um, I'm always fearful of the big one, you know, like the big, the next 9-11. Yeah, next um, 9-11, uh, uh, 9-12, as some people call right. it. Right. Um, yeah. I mean, the the attack in Vegas was huge. And, like, that's not being talked about enough either as far as just, like, you know, uh, we're not if, – if there's a group of people who are, who are, who are well-organized and well-motivated who, and who have the resources – they can get away with with something. Yeah, they, for they, sure. You, you can't you can't stop all of this. So I'm worried about the all you know all the aspects of on like of, of it actually happening and then the aftermath. Um, but we'll probably see just yeah more splintering and actually like them going into hiding places, which allows them to actually plan more attacks overseas as opposed to being a fighting force now. Um, right. So I mean. I guess one thing I was kind of hoping is that maybe since they're not as stable and whatnot, that might kind of kill a little bit of their recruiting. And I was wondering, you know, if they don't have the funding and they don't have this, you know, the 
the caliphate that they had had even just you know yeah. a year ago that 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 could mean that they could i know that they are going to splinter out and i have those same fears as you i do think we're going to see more terrorist attacks happening which i mean let's be honest even if isis wasn't defeated right now i mean every other month there's there's a new one in europe it seems so yeah. But so, so I share your fears there, and I, I just I, I don't know. I just maybe hoping that maybe they won't be able to recruit as much because they won't have you know all the tools necessary yeah. that they no, used I mean, to have. I agree as with far that. As that's the why funding, it, you know. That's why it all comes down to how Syria and Iraq is like how they are reformed in the next five ten years. You know, like yeah. the, there could be a low level insurgency going on for the for the for the for years still. You know, so it does like these next these next few months and years are going to be really critical about how we reorder how they reorganize their countries um how you do it how you de-arm groups that are already that are kind of like already militialized right now how yeah. you incorporate them into into the government um because the the protests that started in syria were about police brutality they were about you know usual material issues and they wanted more democratic autonomy and then it got splintered into idea like ideology and islam and a bunch right. of different factions got involved and proxy actors from around the world but like how these countries regroup and rebuild are going to be really critical regarding if there's going to be any large spaces, as you said, large spaces available for ISIS to reform. Um, right. So, all right. Well, I don't really have anything else to add there. I, I just, like I said, I was trying to, hopefully trying to shed a little bit of positive light and hoping that uh, with them being defeated, that we won't see as much of a, at least I mean, as a, you know, a, I think it's definitely positive that, this group called ISIS is not controlling large territory anymore. Right. Like that's obviously good news. <laughs> yeah. Obviously good news. For sure. All right. So moving on to our last big story, we want to talk about something that doesn't have anything to do with political science. For the first, for like for the first time ever, if we're honest. <laughs> so, right. So what we want to tell you is that astronomers have detected a merger of neutron stars from 130 million light years away. So there's there's a lot of there's a lot of points that we could get into. I just kind of you know why astronomy matters, and we could get into how uh, you know uh, uh, research and any of this stuff actually you know gives us great results, and how this can fuel maybe uh, more interest and, and desire for people to get into space. And there's there's so many points, but I just we could kind of start off with just saying what actually happened and and why it's a big deal. Right. I like that. So LIGO is the name of the Laser Interferometer Gravitational Wave Observatory. Yes, sir. And that is the <laughs> that is the US based instrument that recorded the um the the neutron collision. And I think it's cool because so there's there's two observatories and they're like thirty like like three thousand kilometers apart. One is in Louisiana and the other part of it is in Washington. Right by me. Said, by you, right? Well, and, it's like four hours away, so not or I think five hours. So it's not right by me, but it's it's within a day's drive. And it's like the reason that they're so far apart from each other is because like that allows them to be sure that they're capturing the same exact um, uh, disturbance from space. Right. So that's pretty cool, like how it actually works. Um, sure. And the entire purpose of LIGO is to detect gravitational waves, which until recently was just um, predicted by uh, Einstein's general theory of relativity. And then now yes. I think we've detected, I think there's been five, you know, five sort of detections. But those are it's the a, first four. Yeah, I was gonna say real quick too, and the actual the Nobel Prize in Physics for this year went to right. Kip Thorne and his group who who actually detected the gravitational waves, just to kind of explain how much of a big deal that alone was. Right. Yeah, neutrons are like they are like leftover remnants of supernova explosions that are like really really dense, like they're the size of a city, but weigh as much as like you know three suns or something. Actually, probably way more than three suns, but you know, but like. 
They're just right. Well, it depends. Like it depends. Okay. It depends kind of just you know on the star that happens. I think the yeah. typical one they said is about one point five times the the size of the sun. Okay. But, but yeah, I mean, like you said, it's crushed to the size of a city. And I have a cool. Um, I was listening to a great lecture. Uh, I think she was from Princeton, but she was saying that a, a lot of the fastest ones they rotate faster than our best blender. So think about that. <laughs> how, how many rotations per second? I think our best blender is like six hundred rotations per second. That uh, wow. the the Nutribullet, I think she said, <laughs> and yet some neutron stars are spinning even faster th- than that. And uh, so one cool, just to give a little bit of explanation of how dense it is, one cubic centimeter. So basically, you know, like the size yeah. of like a, like a cubic dice. You know, is thirty billion elephants. <laughs> <laughs> so just think about that. Holding something. And the, like the smaller than the size of a spoon that weighs thirty billion elephants is absolutely crazy. Yeah, that's insane. It's cool. So so yeah, um, you, you kind of mentioned how they happen. I have a, a little paragraph from space.com that that explains it pretty well. They said when stars four to eight times as massive as the sun explode in a violent supernova, their outer layers can blow off in an often spectacular display, leaving behind a small dense core that continues to collapse. Gravity presses the material in on itself so tightly that protons and electrons combine to make neutrons, which is where the name neutron star obviously comes in. So, um, I had one more thing I uh, wanted to read, which is really cool. It's from this book called Welcome to the Universe. And so it's, it's getting into trying to explain the gravity of what it would be like to stand on a neutron star, which is impossible right. because if <laughs> you get close, you would be smashed to the size of a few atoms. But so, so what, uh, what Neil deGrasse Tyson says in this is it's pretty awesome. He says, so I exert a certain amount of energy climbing up a flight of stairs, which sits well within the bounds of my energetic reserves. But imagine a cliff face 20,000 kilometers tall on a hypothetical giant planet with Earth-like gravity. Measure the amount of energy you exert climbing from the bottom to the top, fighting against the gravitational acceleration we experience on Earth for the whole climb. That's a lot of energy, obviously. <laughs> so, so think about that. A, a mountain that's 20,000 kilometers tall. Hmm. The, the tallest mountain on Earth is ju- just a few kilometers with, right. with Mount Everest. It's like, what, five, or it'd be five miles or so? Or right. six miles, I think, is Mount Everest. So obviously that's a lot, a lot of energy. So he, he goes on to say, um, climbing at a rapid rate of 100 meters per hour, you would spend more than 22 years climbing 24 hours a day to get to the <laughs> top of that mountain. Now, so check this out. That's how much energy you would need to step onto a single sheet of paper laid on the surface of a neutron star. Right. Interesting. That is just absolutely. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. It's, it's crazy to sit, sit think about. So climbing a 20,000 mile high mountain is what it would take to get the uh, the distance of a paper. So Yeah, that's awesome. And I like that there are actually like observatories around the world too that as soon as they like I think there are more than 70 satellites pointed to that area in the sky now trying to find other, you know, other um, um, detections of evidence and stuff. What was cool about this one, it was like because uh, they, they'd have to see the gamma ray burst from an, another satellite. I think one of the ones was in Chile and the other one was in Australia, I think they said. And then right. another one in Puerto Rico, right after LIDO de- uh, detected yeah, the gravitational yeah. waves, there was a big burst of light, which is what you would expect when two neutron stars merge. And they actually caught that. And so it, it all it all happened at once to give us this, this just awesome discovery. Right. And there is, so, there is a theory about like how the heaviest... El- the heaviest elements in the universe were, were made and it's mm-hmm. one is that when when neutron stars merge that they create platinum uranium and gold and right. that's just incredible 
Um, it is absolutely. I, I remember when I first heard, you know, I, I might have heard it from Neil deGrasse Tyson or maybe Carl Sagan, but whenever he was like, actually, it might, it might have been Lawrence Krauss, might be the first guy actually, who was like, okay. when we hear like we are star stuff, like it's literally true. Yes. <laughs> and people don't, the people are so confused. Like, what do you mean? I'm not a star. I'm like, no, like literally the elements that are in our body and, and that make up planet Earth could not have existed unless large stars right. collided and then made those yes. elements. Like, it's a true statement to say, like, it's crazy. It's the actual truth. I know one yeah. thing Neil Tyson points out a lot is if you actually take the top, we'll just go top five most common elements found right. in the universe, which number one's hydrogen, number two is helium, which is chemically inert, so it doesn't really do anything anyways. And then I believe three is oxygen, four is nitrogen, five carbon. is carbon, and right. then six is all the others. And when you look at the most abundant uh, chemicals on Earth, Number one is hydrogen, number two is oxygen, three is nitrogen, four is carbon. When you look at our human body, our, our yeah. bodies ourselves, um, we're mostly made of water. So the, the number one element in, in us is hydrogen, and then it's and, um, and then it's oxygen, and then it's nitrogen, and then it's carbon. And then it's so they all line up one-to-one -one of what exactly is the most abundant chemicals in the universe is what we are made of. Yeah, that's, yes. Reflect that's on that, people. Reflect on that. <laughs> so yeah, so I, I have a few quotes that I, I that I also want people to reflect on, just kind of why astronomy is so important. So I've mentioned him a lot, but Neil deGrasse Tyson, I really just think is I don't even call him the Carl Sagan of our time because I think he is his own. He is his own person. He is his own. Right. You know what I mean? And I just I he really instilled in me. So I wanted to say actually, so astronomy was actually my first love when I was a kid. I had told my mom for the longest time that I was going to be an astronaut. I had this painting of john glenn in my room yeah, and i yeah. had all of these star things and but then i remember when i was young they told me i would be too tall because at the time astronauts if you were i think they the tallest you could be was like 5 11 unless they made mm. certain exceptions and i i knew i was just i'm six one so i they right. basically knew i was going to be too tall and it like shut down my dreams Damn. and, <laughs> and I, I like wanted to be an astro and then i was like well maybe i could be an astrophysicist a few years later and then i'm like yeah lab work really isn't for me so yeah you're just doing math all day long. Yeah. It's and so I, was like, you know, I would like to be the person that explains to people what happens basically you know like what i'm doing now and given this enthusiasm doing this but i was like right. actually doing the work is not something i'm really interested in but yeah. so i have this i just have a few quotes i wanted to read that i want everyone to reflect on so the first one is from neil degrasse tyson he says so during our brief stay on planet earth we owe ourselves and our descendants the opportunity to explore in part because it's fun to do, but there's a far nobler reason. The day our knowledge of the cosmos ceases to expand, we risk regressing to the childish view that the universe figuratively, figuratively and literally revolves around us. Right. That is just so much. He, he always talks about, you know, if we abandon science, we're going back to the caves. And that science is the only reason that we have have what we have. And yeah, that's important for sure. Absolutely. And like the, the, the feeling of awe has to be part of our lives, actually. Yes. Um, because yeah, it, it 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 grounds us and says, "Hey, hey, be quiet and listen. Like you aren't you aren't important." And that's a good yes. feeling. That's a good feeling. And it's just if it, and if it's not if it, if it's not good to you, it's still real. So you have sure. to experience reality. 
Absolutely. Uh-huh. Absolutely. I mean, Plato said, uh, this is just another kind of goes on to what you're saying. You know, Plato said that astronomy compels the soul to look upwards and leads us from this world to another. And it, it right. gives us that actual sense of all that, you know, that, that, that there is more than us and whatnot. And so, well, this yeah. last quote, it's from Henry, I believe it's Poincaré. I, I don't really know how to pronounce it, but he's a physicist. And so he says, astronomy is useful because it raises us above ourselves. So kind of get, getting back to what Plato said a little bit, but it is useful because it is grand. It shows us how small is man's body how great his mind since his intelligence can embrace the whole of this dazzling immensity where his body is only an obscure point and enjoy its <laughs> silent harmony that nice. is just so so beautiful of how you know our our little what uh, few ounces that our brains are are, are able to uh, yeah. understand the merging of neutron stars happening 130 million light years away right right it's unbelievable Absolutely. We're lucky. We're very lucky. We are. Like, I'm so glad we live in a time now when we're actually finding cool stuff like this. Because yeah, for, for thousands of years, we just had to guess <laughs> and we just went off of myths and stories. And some people got it kind of close to right, but yeah. for the most, you know, and. So. Yeah, this is like this should be, and it, and it is in a lot of ways the golden age of everything. Yeah. Absolutely. Just everything right now is happening. For sure. So, all right. Well, that kind of wraps up all, all the little points. It was, it was, it's fun to geek out on, on space a little bit. It's something I wasn't, wouldn't really expect us to do, but I like how you said science news is still news. And yeah, science why would news, we people. not want to? Yeah, it's awesome. It's a good story. Absolutely. All right. So moving on to our beyond the lead sections, we're going to, we have two segments that we would like to give you. Um, yeah, I'll go first. So my first okay. one is uh, to preface this. And my, um, as I've, I've mentioned a few times, I'm a psychology major. And the last uh, semester, we, I, one of my assignments was to do some research on mass shootings and how people turn out. And so I, I went in really having no idea if people were, you know, kind of screwed for life or if, it, if it's something that right. they can get past and kind of how does it affect people. So I found some interesting points. And then what was more interesting is actually this week for my uh, development site class, we have to find uh, research. Uh, what the assignment was to find the effects of Hurricanes Harvey and Irma and Maria on children and how does it affect their development. And right. what I found was really similar to what I found on what happens to people mass shooting. So, so that's what I'm going to explain today. So in recent years, it's been you know hard to go more than a few months in America without hearing about a mass shooting. It's true, despite that shootings make up only a small fraction of the actual gun violence numbers, as you know, Patrick and I just discussed a few weeks ago in our gun discussion, but because of their nature, these shootings have implications on everyone involved, but research has shown that people tend to respond in various ways. So a study in 2014 looked at undergraduate women who experienced a mass shooting. It revealed that actually the majority of women had little to no effects on emotional and cognitive functioning following a shooting that occurred at their university. The authors um, said that they had had symptoms and risk factors for victimization data on the subject before the shooting because they had actually taken psychological tests as extra credit for a previous class. So it's kind of, Mm. I don't know if luck is is the word for that, but because they had had all this kind of prior to the shooting. So, and, and so then what they showed is that pre-trauma behavior and functioning were significant factors when distinguishing between women who had recovered without many issues and then women who had PTSD symptoms for long periods of time. So it shows that people are actually able to overcome their initial stress and lead mm-hmm. on to go happy and, and productive lives. And there's been a whole bunch of other studies about that. But um, an, another one that I'm doing is um, 
is in school i'm fine or i'm sorry this week in school we're talking about hurricanes and whatnot and a study that they had, uh, was done right after hurricane katrina i don't have it um in in front of me i accidentally forgot it in my book bag at work but they were uh saying that 60 i believe it was 62 percent uh reported no change in in any of their development after a few years and so right my my main overall just to kind of bring it all together is that disasters and tra- 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 uh, tragedies are obviously horrible and nobody wants to go through them but for the most for the most part everybody cu- turns out okay whether it's children whether it's adults now it is true that children are much more at risk when they're young for a whole bunch of reasons you know that they're they're still developing and they they depend on, on parents and you know when their schools are are damaged or whatnot that takes away some of their nutrition opportunities for lower income families and so children are of course more vulnerable to it but the research actually shows that most of them turn out to be okay so well that's a good little note like right people people can become okay after traumatic experiences yes that's powerful and it helps that we have discovered you know neuroplasticity like literally like like literally the brain can reorganize itself right that's important because it's not it's not obvious or inevitable that we had to evolve that way, you know? It right. could have been a worse situation where, oh my God, because I was eight years old, I could never become, you know, X, Y, or Z. But no, right. man, we have, the, we have the power to change our lives for the better. And that's an empowering um, result. That, yeah, cool. thank you for that. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so about a, probably a month ago now, um, this professor named Alexander Cooley, he is the director of the Harriman Institute from Columbia University. And he's one of the go-to scholars on Eurasia. And it was just, so he came and gave a talk to my university here in uh, St. Louis. And um, it was cool seeing a, a top-level professor give a passionate yet, you know, I, w- I wouldn't say subjective because there's no such thing as that. I mean, I, mean, I'm, I, mean, I wouldn't say objective, but, you know, a, a, pretty, a pretty objective, you know, um, talk about Russia-U.S. relations and he pronounced a bunch of words I've never heard pronounced before because like, I've only read them, you know. So it's kind of yeah, cool. Like he's very sure. fluid, I, I, and I always have that problem is that I'll read something and then I hear something I'm like, oh, that's what it sounds like, really. Right. He's just he was very fluid in Eurasian like cities and people and leaders, and it was pretty cool hearing him speak. And he was really passionate. And so um, the talk was called "The Reset Trap: Russia's Resurgence and the End of the Post Cold War," and. So he gave he, so I actually expected a bunch of focus on you know the last year basically, and okay. he did not talk about the 2016 U.S. election really at all. I don't think he mostly okay. talked about the post Cold War era up until like two years ago, and it was okay. like setting the stage for why are we seeing Russia resurgence right now? Um, and it was mostly from the point of view of Russia, and that was interesting. Um, and so just briefly, so there are. Three enduring sources of hostility right now between the U.S., the West, and Russia, and they are the fate of the post-Soviet space or the near abroad is what Russia and, and Europe actually calls it, the same space. Um, um, democracy promotion and regime change, and then the rules for international order. Um, are we going to see a multilateral world or a multipolar world? And right now, you like right now, it's basically... Uh, a G zero world where I mean you you, you could you, you could kind of you could kind of call it unipolar still with the U S being the only world power as of right now, but um, so basically he says these these enduring sources of hostility aren't fake they're not going to go away they can't be ameliorated like we actually have real 
real disagreements about how the future should look. And so actually Professor Rochester, one of my favorite professors from my university, he asked him a, a classic like international relations theory question, which is basically there are these three level of analyses. Um, so, it, you know, like, should you look at the events regarding the individual leader, the nation state or the international system at large? And um, Cooley said he's an international system at large. Totally. Um, he goes, he goes, it could get worse after Putin, which is really interesting to think about. Um, like Russia has genuine disagreements and he kind of even puts about like he goes, people want to. I'm interested even that I, just real quick, that after Putin. So that's, a, yeah. knowing Putin's going to be gone. Cause I mean, well, I mean he's going to die one day, right? Like, that. okay, like, yeah. I'm saying like, <laughs> like literally there will be an after Putin. Yeah. It could be five okay. years. It could be 30, I guess, if you want to really, I mean, I mean, it's, it's a pseudo democracy with like one political party. So again, like right. it's probably going to be up to Putin like, when he leaves, but it, not necessarily going to be the case that that leader works with us better actually yeah but he says um uh there's no yeah there's um there's actually not a lot of there's not a lot of um um coordination going on he goes russia mostly bombed everyone else besides isis in syria um there's not even really counterterrorism strategy going on that that works he goes we don't trade with them as much as people think so he was trying to point out that it's actually a very real difference and it's not going to go away and it's probably going to get even worse he said he was pessimistic about about the relationship right now and um um i i actually was sitting next to a classmate of mine she's from ukraine and she's really anti-russia because russia has devastated ukraine right. so ten thousand people have actually died in the last few years from that from the um the crimea occupation and also the excursion into the eastern ukraine there and that's not being talked about that much either there's 1.5 million internally displaced people in ukraine yeah so it's 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 bad I'm pretty sure the only time i heard about it was uh, what was that one documentary that, that you, you yeah a world a world in disarray. disarray yeah um but so she actually asked professor cooley do you think the u.s should arm ukraine and cooley said no because the Ukrainian army won't can't defeat can't defeat Russia in a war, and it sort of it incentivizes it incentivizes sort of if you start now, you're going to continue. And he just says we can't we shouldn't do that right now. And it's a very interesting answer because I've heard a lot of people say that we should arm Ukraine, and yeah. he says we probably shouldn't. Hmm. Um, but Amazing. yeah, that was a very interesting talk. Like, is he is he worried about kind of what ha what's happening in the Middle East if we arm them? Is or is it? just not even comparable at all because it's it's russia and the ukraine well i mean it, it just it encourages it encourages arms buildups that aren't going to slow down yeah and he says it, it's going to give ukraine a big head they're they can't defeat i mean again uh, like given defensive weapons i think we actually kind of already are slightly at least um but like given defensive weapons is different than giving them offensive weapons and i think she asked about offensive weapons in particular mm -hmm. he just says like it, it might give ukraine too much of too much of an idea in their head that they could fight a war against Russia. And then that, that is when you start beginning possibly larger war, you right. know? Um, All right. So he's, um, he's basically kind of online. I'm sorry. Yeah. Alex, yeah. Alexander a Cooley. He has a Twitter. It's called Cooley. It's C O L. Sorry. His Twitter is Cooley on Eurasia. Yeah. And it's spelled C O L L E Y on Eurasia on Twitter. Okay. Well, no, I was wondering uh, more specifically this talk. Is this talk posted on YouTube or something? I don't YouTube think his was talk's on YouTube. I don't think it was recorded, no. Oh, okay. It, it right. didn't look like it. It didn't look like it. Okay. But he, he, he has been on Blogging Heads before, um, bloggingheads.tv. If you just search his name, he talks to some political scientist about Eurasia actually a, a few months ago, I think.
Okay. All right, cool. All right, well, moving on to our back pages. This week, I'm going to recommend the book that I read the little excerpt from. It's called Welcome to the Universe, and it's by Neil deGrasse Tyson, Michael A. Strauss, and J. Richard Gott. And the subtitle is An Astrophysical Tour. And what it is, it's just a very detailed so what he tried to say is it, it's an inch thick or but right. a, a mile deep is, is how right. is how he says it and so <coughs> excuse me and so what it is it's a it's a deep look at the universe in ways that someone that's not an astrophysicist can understand but he really gets into the science so there's everything from understanding how the spectra of light works from how protons are pushed from the outer layer into the core and back out and all these different spectrum okay. and, and just tons of details about galaxy formation and planet formation and life possible life on other earths and the breakdown just of everything that has to do with the universe and it came out around last christmas and it was it was the okay. only thing i asked my mom for christmas for and it was kind of funny because it was sold out everywhere online mm. at all all the bookstores and so i was just convinced i wasn't going to get it and yet she got it for me for christmas nice. it, was pretty it cool. looks nice like it, like the the uh, cover looks pretty like I, I like the aesthetics of it yeah it's it's a great book and it's so readable it's it's written okay. by three astrophysicists I, neil degrasse tyson does more about the the star formation and whatnot because that was what he studied in um for his phd thesis and i think right. the other guys are from columbia and some other but they're all they're all ivy league professors you know writing but it's it's very readable and they add a little bit of humor and there's amazing examples that just really explain and give you perspective on the universe and so, cool again yeah, it's that's called, cool i'll check that out it's called Welcome to the Universe by Neil deGrasse Tyson and two others. But he's nice. the main one everybody knows. So. All right, everyone knows him. <laughs> All right. So I want to recommend a documentary called The Fog of War, 11 Lessons from the Life of Robert S. McNamara. And so Robert McNamara was one of the whiz kids. He was the Secretary of Defense in the John F. Kennedy and, and Lyndon Johnson administrations. And basically, um, he is one of the architects of of modern warfare actually and trying to turn it into like a systems analysis um and he actually was i think he was the chief executive of ford motor company before he became a mil you know a, a military ma a guy and yeah. there's a bunch of heated emotional opinions about robert mcnamara and the reason i like this is because the entire documentary is the um is 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 him being interviewed over a five-year period i believe it was and he as as he is now, as an 85-year-old man reflecting on his time, on his life. Yeah. And it, human, it humanizes him in a way that I think is always nice to see. Um, but he's really, really honest about U.S. and Vietnam, about what went wrong, about how it probably was never going to go right. And he even straight up says, I probably am a war criminal. And he's tearing up in his eyes. And it's like it was just the farthest thing from, like, because he's known as kind of like this, not a sociopath, but he's, you can kind of read about his decisions and he seems sort of cold and calculating and mm -hmm. definitely now he like living that life, looking back and he warns us like, so yeah, it's like, it's set up, a, it's, it's set up in 11, 11 lessons and he gives lessons about going into war, about how you should respect the enemy, um, about you should always have an exit strategy and about like very, like very just like not even war related lessons, just like smart lessons to take away in your own life and okay. it won the academy award for best documentary in 2003 and i had to watch it for a class last year and it was really really good i watched like three times i think it's oh, really wow. good 
All right, cool. That's something I'll check out. Is it on Netflix or any of those? Do you know? I think I think you can like literally just search it on Google and you can find it a lot of places just streaming. Oh, okay. I think that they I think there's a website called top like topdocumentaryfilms.com actually is where I watched it. Okay. I think I think that's right. All right, sounds good. Well, this that wraps up this week's episode of Beyond the Lead. Again, you can find me on Twitter at Mike Stinner, Mike S K I N N N E R, and my website is MikeStinnerMedia.com. And a quick note to our listeners, we want to say if you're listening to us on iTunes, Stitchers, TuneIn, wherever you listen to us, please rate us and leave a review because it does help. And so, yeah, I just wanted yeah, to, 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 even if you hate what either of us are saying, feel free to share that and we could we might even read it on, on the next show and yeah. who knows it could turn into a segment so, yes. uh, so, yeah, even so if you don't like the show or something just yeah, but preferably just tell us how bad we are and we'll read <laughs> we'll read it on the air um, sounds good <laughs> but yeah I, I am patrick foreign and you can find me on twitter at patrick fo and i have a website and it's icriticaltheory.wordpress.com thanks for listening see you next week